0: What's up, everybody? We're about to jump into the one of the most unbelievable podcasts that we've ever recorded here at the Ones Ready Studio. Kim, Killer Chick, Campbell, the legend, Distinguished Flying Cross with Fowler, one of the only pilots to ever land an A-10 in the manual reversion mode. We had a great talk. I just wanna say thanks to Rebels Creed. Shout out to the T-shirt. Thanks for everything that you guys are doing as a new company. Go check Rebels Creed out. You can find them on IG and, and on uh, rebelscreed.com. So thanks to those guys. Here we go with the podcast. Kim, Killer Chick Campbell. Thanks for everybody coming out. Here we go. Welcome back, everybody, to the Ones Ready podcast. I can't actually believe I'm about to have this episode happen, but here we are. So Aaron, as you well know, hi. How are you? Friendly, local, neighborhood PJ. Today on the podcast, we have Kim, Killer Chick Campbell. Ma'am, welcome to the podcast. How are you?
1: I'm great. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, well, it's uh, it's it's my honor. We were talking just before we got on here. I'm a bit of a fanboy. I've known your story since it happened as a young airman, uh, and then you know, young staff sergeant before I cross trained back in a pararescue. So you were one of those people in the air force that I looked up to and uh and and sort of uh sort of fanboyed a little bit over. So we're gonna jump into that story now. But as always, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be in the air force? Yeah,
1: sure. I uh. I decided when I was in fifth grade that I was going to be a fighter pilot. So this was kind of a lifelong <laughs> fifth, dream for me. Yeah.
0: Fifth, fifth grade. That's awesome, Did So yeah. I, we'll talk about it. I know your dad was actually in the Air Force, too. Is it because, you know, grew up in a military family or where did that love of no, flight come from?
1: You know, actually, my dad got out of the Air Force um, when I was born, you know, right around that same time. So I, I didn't grow up as an Air Force brat. Okay. But uh, I I decided I was going to be a fighter pilot. This was 1986 and um women weren't actually allowed to be fighter pilots then so that was uh i didn't know that which was probably a good thing and (laughs) uh i talked to my dad who who by then i had figured out he had been in the air force and he said well if you want to be a fighter pilot and my ultimate goal was to go on to become an astronaut and so he said if that's something that you want to do then a lot of those astronauts are pilots a lot of the pilots come from the Air Force Academy. That's probably your best bet. And so I kind of took that to heart and that was it. Like I was on this mission that I was going to go to the Air Force Academy and become a fighter pilot.
0: Pretty good. Five years old. You already had it locked down from... No, fifth grade,
1: fifth grade, not five years old. (laughs) Okay,
0: (laughs) Not (laughs) quite that young. (laughs) That's still pretty early to figure out exactly what you wanted to do all the way through. So you show up at at you know this academy you get your service recommendation and then you you show up at the small technical school tucked into the Colorado Rockies yeah. mostly for boys that we know is the air force academy how hard was it when you showed up as a freshman to the air force academy with these big dreams cuz now you're in competition land
1: yeah well i struggled to even get in so i got rejected from the academy my my first attempt and um you know, so that meant that when I got there, it was like, I was finally there, you know, and I was so thankful to be there that I was just like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to be successful and work really hard. So, you know, getting that rejection, which was painful, uh, because it was kind of everything that I had worked for. um, It turned out, I think, as a motivator for me, because at that point, I was like, well, if they don't think I should be here, you know, I barely made it in. I was like, Right down to the wire, they're like, "Well, somebody else turned down their appointment, so you can have it and you can show up." And that was like two weeks before basic training, so I was just very determined to do well um, and really work hard because you compete for pilot slots, and so I wanted to be at the top of my class to make sure that there was no doubt that I
0: could go to pilot training. We talk about using failure as a motivation all the time. Like yeah. that, that failure that can fuel you. Like that can it gives you that immediate chip on your shoulder and it makes you want to go compete against people. Um, I love, I love he- hearing you say like, you felt like you made it and then you showed up as a freshman at the Air Force Academy. Those, uh, those first couple of years as a plebe, uh, not, mo- not the most fun. What was your experience like as you, as you went through those first two years?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you're kind of, you finished high school and almost everybody is at the top of their class. They are, you know, they're, Elite in terms of their elite athletes or their valedictorians or class presidents, and you show up, and well, now you're average because everybody's yeah. like everybody's
0: you. a superstar, right?
1: Yeah, and so um, it's you know, it's kind of this humbling experience. I mean, and, and then there's basic training, and you're at the bottom of the food chain anyway. Um, but again, I think it comes down to just one you got to show up ready to go with the right mindset, and then the physical fitness is incredibly important. Uh, for basic training. And so for me, it was all about I was going to show up as ready as I could. And I, you know, I worked out before I went to the tune of running in my combat boots in the hills of San Jose, California, I put a installed a pull up bar, my dad installed the pull up bar in my bathroom, (laughs) so I could max out the pull ups, you know, and so it helps to show up ready. But uh, yeah, you kind of start out and you're you're around people that are excellent. And so um, it is tough. It's a competition. But at the same time, like, You are not going to succeed unless you work together as a team. Uh, So it's a really interesting dynamic because you are competing. But if you try to go solo, you will fail. Uh, You have to work together. So, um, yeah, you know, overall, like I look back, I think I have forgotten a lot of the bad things. But I look back on my time at the academy as like this really great time where I met a lot of really incredible people that got me towards the goal that I wanted. Um, yeah, it, it's been 25 years, so I've dumped a lot of those <laughs> bad memories.
0: <laughs> well, it's funny how quickly our brain just shuts that off and you're just yeah. like, oh no, this was a great time when you're going through it. You're like, this is the worst time yeah. I've ever had. And, you know, in yeah, I, don't, I and... don't
1: really want to go through it again, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not.
0: Somebody uh, there's, there's always the question like, okay, how, how do you think you would do an a and I'd be like, pass. No, I don't, I don't think I'd do well at all. I think, yeah. uh, I think I wouldn't even want to try at this point.
1: Yeah.
0: I do want to highlight something. Yep. Oh yeah. Uh, so you were a wing commander, a cadet wing commander. So you went from mm-hmm. almost not getting in yeah. to being essentially the highest ranking student in your, your cadet wing. How how did how did you feel? Did you feel like accomplished? Did you feel like was that chip on your shoulder just kind of still like I I knew I could do this? Or, or how did you feel when you were in the le- leadership position as a student?
1: Yeah, I felt like I had earned my way there. You know, like I had worked really hard to get in, and there, you know, I maybe my scores competing with everybody weren't quite as good. Um, But SAT scores only get you so far. And then, you know, it's a lot of how you, it's, you know, it's a lot more uh, certainly than that. And so I really did feel like, you know, I'd worked my butt off while I was there. And it was kind of like, look, you made the right choice, right? You allowing me to get into the academy, you made the right choice. Um, So I felt, yeah, I felt, I guess, accomplished. And then also, you know, it wasn't when I was a freshman, I actually got a call from the admissions office to go see the admissions office. Oh, um, no. <laughs> well, and I, of course, I was a freshman. I was totally worried. But I had actually sent them letters every week once I got that rejection letter to say, like, hey, uh, if somebody doesn't want their spot, I'm here. I'm ready. I'm available. And uh, so I, they kind of knew me because I had sent these letters every week. So it was like they wanted to, to meet me and get to know me. So I felt like at that point, I'm like, all right, I earned my spot here.
0: Nice. And you actually got to share that with your dad. You were the first father and daughter wing commander pair that had ever happened. Is that, is that true?
1: Yeah, it's pretty cool because my dad graduated with the class of 1970 and he was the wing commander when he was there. So to have that, you know, to, to walk down the hallway with all the pictures of the cadet wing commanders and like see my dad and then see me and realize like he was, well, he still is, he's always been kind of my role model (laughs) and my hero. And just to achieve that same thing that he did was, was pretty cool.
0: What a fantastic thing from from not even like realizing that he was in the Air Force to that evolution to sharing yeah. that that had to be a, a big deal for you and, and your relationship. That's awesome. Good on yeah. good on the both of you. Yeah. So we graduate the uh, the Academy in 97. You get your first assignment when when you tracked out of school. Did you go immediately into UPT or how did that work?
1: I actually spent a few years in the, in the UK. I went to grad school uh, okay. on a Marshall scholarship program. So I spent two years um, as a second lieutenant not wearing a uniform, uh, studying in the UK. And, uh, that was, I mean, that what a fantastic experience. I mean, to get outside and see something from a different perspective and work with all these different international students was, um, just a great way for me to broaden out a little bit. Um, and then at the same time, I was so anxious to get to back to pilot training because sure. I was watching all my friends go through and they're getting the fighters and the things that they want. And I'm, I'm right. anxious to get there. So, Two year delay due to grad school, um, but uh, in the long run was the right choice to do that for sure.
0: Where in the UK did you go?
1: I went to the University of Reading first for a degree in international security studies. And then I did an MBA at the University of London.
0: Oh, nice! Peaches and I both spent time at the three twenty first down okay. in, uh, down at Milton Hall, so familiar with with that area. Yeah. So two years behind you. Now you're an accomplished grad school graduate. You're super duper smart, and now you're ready to actually get into pilot trading.
1: Yeah. So I'm anxious to get to pilot. Training. Anxious to pilot training. <laughs>
0: and and once again we step in on a kind of like day one. Like, hi, I've got this degree now, and now I'm two years kind of behind my peer group as yeah. far as pilots go, and and you mm-hmm. show up how did you, did you prepare at all for UPT? How did you keep yourself on track in those two years?
1: Yeah. It's a, you know, I think it's a little bit hard to prep completely because you could do some studying and things, but until you're in it, it's, um, it's really hard to kind of know what's going to go on and know really how to prep yourself. And I think the thing for me is I went in with this, like I hadn't spent, you know, I wasn't just at the Academy. I had time to kind of decompress from that experience and really just, sure. I was energized when I was ready and uh, ready to like study and really commit to it. And, um, so I really just, I, I showed up there and uh, I was ready to go. I mean, I was just going to work my butt off to get the fighter that I wanted because again, I knew that was going to be competitive to get a fighter pilot slot.
0: Right. And which fighter did you want? Was it always the A-10?
1: No, I didn't know what I wanted at the time when I started. I didn't, you know, I was like this idea. I wanted to go fly fighters, but I didn't really know which one. Um, And it took me really, you know, six to nine months of really just talking to other pilots and learning about the missions and then flying. When I realized that like the formation work, you know, the close in formation work, uh, it was cool. I mean, don't get me wrong, but it was like, okay, that's cool. But then we got to the low levels and I was like, Ooh, this is fun. I like this. (laughs) Uh, And and pilot training, you're not like, you know, you're not dropping bombs or shooting the gun or anything like that. It's just very basic. So you don't really get into that. But I talked to a lot of pilots and I realized for me, that mission of close air support was so it's, it just resonated with me. It was like, so my, my primary mission is to go support these guys on the ground and get them home safely to their families. Like, I can relate to that. Like, that's something that I want to do.
0: Okay. Well, we sort of breezed right by this one, but when you got into the Air Force Academy, you didn't even know, when did the exclusion for female fighter pilots happen? Like, when did that go away?
1: So that went away uh, my senior year in high school. So 1993 uh, when I graduated high school. So yeah, I mean, it was, I didn't really know about it. And I think senior year in high school, I had this recognition. I was actually in a debate class and, we were talking about women in combat. And so it was like, Oh, wait a second, this thing I want to do. I'm not actually allowed to do it right now, but thankfully it was lifted. There were women that came before me, um, that, you know, kind of got the first knocked out of the way, which is always nice. Um, Always
0: good. Yeah. Yeah, You never want to be the first. I'd rather be a good fifth than a first. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Well, (laughs) and they, you know, there was a lot of initial struggles. So to, I mean, there weren't a lot of women when I showed up anyway. I mean, I was a handful of maybe a couple uh, women anyway, but it was nice to, Nice that there were women that went before me.
0: Yeah, that paved the way. So we're getting through UPT. You do well. Um, You make the decision and you go A-10. What was your first flight like in the A-10?
1: It takes a little bit to get there because we got to go through survival training and water survival and all those fun things. But, uh, you know, so it's really, it was about six months after I graduated from pilot training and I went on to A-10 training at Davis Month and Air Force Base in Arizona uh, and you do so much preparation leading to it because the A-10 is single seat. I mean, there's no, there are no yeah. flyable yeah. two seat A-10s. And so the first time you fly, you're so you're by yourself. So there's a lot of preparation, a lot of simulators, uh, before the first time you fly is actually fairly like basic, you know, you're not doing a lot. You're going to go out, sure. you're going to do some instrument work. Um, but that moment of taking off and like, it's like the second of, um, you're excited for about a second and then it's total focus on what you're doing. Right. Um, But you're really not an A-10 pilot until you shoot the gun. So you got to knock out like eight flights and then you go shoot the gun and you're like, okay, (laughs) now I've made it.
0: And now I've made it. Yeah. Now I can
1: can wear the patch.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. We, uh, we talk about that a lot. Like you think you've made it. There's all these times in your career. Every once in a while I'll, I'll throw my beret on and I'll go to walk into a building or something and I'll have this, this distinct feeling of like, Oh crap, you're a PJ. Yeah. Like holy cow, you uh wow. You okay, cool. Um, I I imagine the first time you rip off a couple squeezes of that 30 millimeter, I imagine that for you that was the same thing.
1: Yeah, you're like, okay, the spider pilot thing that I've always wanted to do, like I've got it, you know, like I'm here. But then and then you land and then you debrief and you're like, ah, I still have a long way to go. Right. You know, it's like the next the next thing. I gotta get combat mission ready. I've gotta become a flight lead, an instructor, go to combat. It just, I don't know. I don't know that it ever ends.
0: Right. When was that first assignment at DM?
1: That was in, well, it was 2001 because wow. I was in A-10 training when 9-11 happened.
0: What an unbelievable scenario for you. Yeah. For, for you to, to have this road from, I think I want to do this thing, to trying to struggle to get into the academy, to, to getting everything that it is that you you would laid out. And I ha- there had to be some part of your brain that was like, I've done all this work and I'm here to answer the call but I sort of wish there was something going on. What was that nine 11 experience like for you at the fighter squadron?
1: Um, I mean, unreal. I think like for everybody, it was just this moment of one shock, but also rea- it was like a reality check. It was, we're at war. Mm-hmm. I think we completely knew that. I mean, we were under attack. It was very, um, apparent the way that the base responded and, um, I think at that point I knew that like my life as an A10 pilot as an Air Force officer was about to change pretty dramatically, um, you know. But prior to this, I mean, the A10 was kind of just uh, you know a little bit on the chopping block in, in many ways, and so 9/11, you know, changed for us. I mean, we deployed nonstop. I, I finished A10 training in December of 2001, got to my unit, Pope Air Force Base. And we deployed a couple months later. I mean, brand new A-10 pilot. And I'm deploying first to support Operation Southern Watch in Kuwait. And then we moved into Afghanistan
0: for enduring mm-hmm.
1: freedom. I mean, it was a it was a fast turn.
0: It was. Kinda, what was the... Go ahead, man. I was going
1: to say, it was like, you know, you do all this training for the reality of combat. I think there's, you know, at the time, but before 9-11, it was like, well... You know, will we go? Will we not? Will there be an opportunity to do what we've trained to do? And there was an opportunity. It happened very quickly. So it was like there was this renewed focus on everything that we were doing.
0: Yeah. And and at that point, the only thing you had was AARs from really Desert Storm, you know, yep. Gulf 1 and 2, where the A10 was, uh, you know, obviously a you know, key to, to uh, our victory there. But yeah. there's only so much that you can get from those AARs. You know the the PJs yeah. in in uh, in my my peer group, we felt the same thing. Like we were there to receive this information, but really before that 2001 era, you didn't have any combat tested PJs, CCT, TACP. It was you know we we were talking about doing dangerous things and, and training for war, but that that completely changed. So by the time that I got back to the schoolhouse in you know 2004 2005, there was like weird mixes of of people that had had three deployments under their belt, three yeah. or four. And then there were some of the older, you know, the older PJs, those 90s PJs that just didn't have the chance to see it. It was a weird time.
1: Yeah, it was, um, you know, I, I look back and thankfully, I, we did have some of the experience from the Desert Storm pilots, because I remember specifically one night on a Friday night in the bar, because that's where we learned a lot of our things. Uh, Amen. We, uh, you know, we were at the bar and one of our what an A-10 pilot who had flown Desert Storm, Rob Sweet, he was shot down on a prisoner ward during Desert Storm. And he came uh-huh. in to just talk to us and share his experience. And, um, you know, it was one, it was a reality check for us as well. Um, but also it was just, um, you know, sharing those lessons. And at the time I had no idea how critical those lessons would be because he talked about getting hit. He talked about battle damage not just his experience, but also the experience of some of the other A-10 pilots. And it was like, you know, at the time you're just trying to soak it all in and hope that those things never happen to you. And I just, you know, it's a good thing I listened. (laughs) Let's put it that way.
0: (laughs) Well, well, absolutely. So that, that kinds of bring that, that brings us to the, to the 2003 mission. So, you know, you had your, you had your time, you, you, you've supported Southern watch and you you had a good deployment there. You came home, you went to Afghanistan and, and really those second deployment, that's when your aperture starts opening up. And yeah. you know, it's, it's maybe the outside looks different sometimes, you know, especially during GWAT, you look outside your window and sometimes there's mountains and desert. And then sometimes there was just desert. So that just, yeah. that would tell you which country you, you deployed to. But you know, this time you, you found yourself in Iraq. What did, uh, and, and what status did you deploy, at the beginning of that deployment, were you a flight lead? Were you in a leadership position or, or were you, yeah. I hate no, I to say just, just a pilot? But.
1: I was just a wingman. Um, you know, <laughs> at, at this point we had spent um, some time in Afghanistan and then we, our unit turned very quickly to pivot to Iraq. So we came home from Afghanistan um, and our unit wasn't actually the one that was supposed to go, it really should have been our sister squadron. <laughs> um, but I'm not sure what happened behind the scenes. I was just a wingman, uh, but we were, we were selected to go again. And um, my husband happened to be in the sister squadron. So this is a long-term discussion for
0: us, <laughs> so is, right, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, but we were selected to go again. And, uh, you know, I think we were all, that's what we wanted. You know, we wanted, like if there was a war that was going to happen, we wanted to be there because we knew we could make a difference and we can make an impact. And so we left late February, landed in Kuwait March 1st. And, um, you know, it, it was very apparent to me that this was different than the first time I landed in Kuwait because there were aircraft that I, mean, I think we were the last A10s to show up on the ramp. Mm-hmm. And there were just aircraft as far as we could see. I mean, it was just this wall to wall of A10s and rescue helicopters. And it was just. It was a huge buildup. So I think at that point we knew that this was different. Uh, Iraq was different. The threat was different. um, So much so that our squadron commander had us write notes home to our families before we could fly. Like if we didn't make it, there was at least a letter that he could deliver to our families. So, uh, yeah, that put things into perspective pretty quick.
0: That's tough. How, How did you feel about that?
1: Uh, you know, it's one of those things you're like, well, I guess I, I got to write it, you know, cause right, yeah, right. otherwise you're not going to fly. So, um, I still have the letters. I,
0: haven't oh, wow. read,
1: I haven't read them.
0: I don't know, I don't know if you should. Yeah. I don't
1: either. You know, I, yeah. you know, I didn't have kids at the time. So I wrote a letter to my parents, a letter to my sure. friend, and a letter to my husband. But, uh, yeah, I think it was just like, okay, knock this out, get this done so I can fly. But, uh, you try not to dwell on the potential reality. You, I think you prepare for it, but you don't dwell on it. And
0: then you move on. (laughs) Yeah. It's a sobering reality. And oftentimes we'll get DMs of people. I I answered one the other day where, you know, a young, a young man was, was asking me, said, Hey, you know, I've always wanted to serve in GWAT, GWAT's over. I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to serve anymore because I can't serve in that capacity. I really want to go to war. And -hmm. at this point in my life, I'm like, Hey, my friend, that is, that is not a thing. Like, no. we, we do not wish for war in this thing. No. We're happy, you know, I'm proud of my service in GWAT and I'm proud of the deployments I've had, but I wouldn't, uh, if there was one thing that I could turn off like King for a day, yeah. we wouldn't go to war. We wouldn't have done no. it. But I uh, totally it,
1: agree with you. It, it, when it happens, you want to be a part of it to support your brothers and sisters, like to do your job. But I wouldn't No, I don't, you know, wish for it. It's, uh, uh there's too many, too much bad associated. Pers- with
0: yes, it. ma'am. <laughs> Perspective of wisdom, we'll call it that. Yeah. So we get in, uh, you, you're out of Kuwait, you see the just every single aircraft in the world on the ramp, and you have this sobering feeling that things are going to be a little bit different. Where did the yeah. 2003 mission fall in that deployment? So you got there in March. Mm-hmm. Did you have some time under your belt beforehand, or, or where did this actually fall in your deployment yeah. window? Yeah, uh,
1: I had flown about 10 missions up to this point. Um, you know, I Since I was a wingman, one, I wasn't even sure that they were going to take me on the deployment. Um, and then I got there and I thought, well, maybe I'll just work in the mission planning. cell. they may not let me fly. Mm-hmm. And, and then, um, we needed every pilot we could get. We ended up bringing more pilots over. So, um, I had flown about 10 missions as a wingman. Um, we combat paired with another pilot. So I would, as a wingman, I would fly with a experience flight league, which was fantastic. We'd fly with each other for about two weeks. So, I had just switched over to a new combat pair. We had flown a couple missions together, um, but at this point, so our our primary mission was to support the army mm-hmm. and it, they were moving all the way to Baghdad and moving pretty quickly. And so by April 6th, 5th, 6th, 7th, in that timeframe, we're in Baghdad now. And so mm-hmm. now for us, you know, this, this idea that we're doing close air support in downtown Baghdad was when we first heard that we were like, what? You know, that, that's, that's the super MEZ missile engagement zone is what we called it. You know, it's surrounded by surface-to-air missiles. Now, a lot of that was taken out by the time we got there. But, you know, we knew that this was going to be very different than Afghanistan for that reason. But that's where the ground troops were, so that's where we were going. And so it, it was quiet might not be the right word. It was um, a little bit more quiet uh, on the way to Baghdad. Like there wasn't as much resistance, we'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. And then we get to Baghdad, and now we're doing, you know, close air support missions, troops in contact missions, you know, every day, and so much so that they're just stacking these airplanes up around Baghdad, so that if someone makes a call, someone can just float right in. Um, so that's about that's kind of the time frame where all this happened. Was you know, we're now in Baghdad, and things things changed dramatically.
0: Did that feel surreal to you when you were flying in that stack on stack on stack of aircraft? Was there ever a time where you stuck, stood back and you were just, you you felt like you were in a, you know, some, some people describe it as a video game or some people describe yeah. it as a dream. Did, did that ever feel surreal to you?
1: It does. I think um, it's surreal because it's like everything that you train for, right? It's all those right. things that you plan for, but to actually see it um, for me, that happened on the April 7th mission. Um, you know, a lot of the times we were probably getting shot at. We just didn't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, April 7th, all of a sudden, you know, that mission, we ended up a lot lower than we normally are. So I could see a firefight. Like I could see the tracers. I could see the smoke. I could, see, it was just surreal to me. And it's, so it's kind of a half second of realization of like, this is, this is everything that we train for. This is exactly what we plan for. You know, there's, this moment or has hesit- not hesitation, but the second of like, I don't want to mess this up. Like this yeah. is it. Like I got to do everything that I've trained to do. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, it's just this moment of it's surreal, and then it, it has to pass. Right. Cause then you're mm-hmm. to focus, you know, hundred percent focused on what I'm doing.
0: So here we are. We're in the fight. You get the call. You know, there was a, another mission that you were going to go support. And then mm-hmm. I, I believe the call was for troops in contact and you got diverted and you had to do exactly that. You had to go yeah. in with with lives on the line and people calling for your help. Yeah, you're you're in. How did that go? Like, what was the first thing that happened where you realized like, uh oh, this is this is a different one?
1: I think, you know, the weather that day was terrible. So we could not actually see the ground. And for us then, I mean, there was, you had to get below the weather. It was <laughs> yeah, like, that's... it was a requirement. <laughs> right? So, sure. um, we weren't really sure we were going to be able to do anything. And then, you know, you get a call for troops in contact and you're like, well, we're going to figure this out. Um, and so my flight lead just found a hole in the clouds and dove down through, uh, you know, then I'm like solo in Iraq by myself above the clouds. <laughs> and he's like, all right, Casey, you can come down below the weather too. And, uh, so I found a hole in the clouds and just you know dove down through and that's when i broke out and it was like wow one i'm a lot lower than we normally are because we're below the weather Mm -hmm. and uh just to see it set up i mean um it was right over the tigris river our guys were on the west side of the river uh and then enemy on the east side targets uh in terms of like a a deviation of the target for friendly and enemy doesn't get much better than that to have a river in right, between. Yeah. I mean, that's a very nice uh, differentiating feature. Um, makes us feel a lot safer. We know exactly where the friendlies are and the enemy is. And uh, But I could see like these, I mean, just flashes and smoke. It was just, I mean, it was so surreal for that second. And then it's like, immediately we're talking about, you know, we're going to roll in with guns. We're going to, we have to get, our target was underneath the bridge. Mm-hmm. So for us, that's all, that's forward firing. We got to either shoot rockets or gun to get underneath the bridge um, my flight lead was immediate. He saw the target. He w- he rolled in from north to south as I'm just coming down below the weather, and the JTAC uh, said not effective. It's got to come in from south to north just based on where the enemy was at. Mm-hmm. You know, so now we're there's only one way we can come in, and really one way we can come out. So we're very predictable. So and we're we're talking about this. So we decide we'll just do a couple passes and then climb up, kind of get our energy back, reassess things. So we each did uh, two passes, uh, gun, a gun pass and a rocket pass. And then, uh, t- then on my last pass, he's like, all right, after this pass, we're going to climb up and reassess things. Um, I rolled in on that last pass. I remember kind of just fine-tuning my aim point right underneath the bridge, um, hit the weapons release button, the pickle button, pulled off target, just, you know, trying to climb and get my energy back. I'm heavy, mm-hmm. full of weight, full of weapons, and just felt this, you know, this huge explosion at the back of the airplane. I mean, there, there is no doubt in my mind. Like I knew immediately what had happened. Um, I'd equate it to like getting rear ended in a car crash, like at high speed. It just was, it kind of threw me over. I remember seeing this bright red, orange fireball. Um, and then I did kind of the instinctive thing as the jet nosed over, I pulled back on our control stick and just nothing, like nothing happened. (laughs) This is like this is not good it's kind of that second of reality of like this could go really badly as i'm seeing baghdad getting closer i mean i remember like this half second of looking at my ejection handles and thinking this is not going to go well you know this is the last thing that the last thing that i want to do and so i reverted to my training like it was this instant of like you know you things slow down i guess in some ways like i just i remember seeing all of these things, but at the same time I'm reacting, you know, I'm, I've got to do something to survive. Uh, and so I go back to my training, of analyze the situation, figure out what the hell's going wrong and could see this. Like uh, we have this caution panel over on our right side and it's like, there's so many lights on it. I'm trying to decipher what's most important.
0: Terrifying at the
1: top. Yeah. And I've got, we've got, hydraulic lights that are for pressure and the reservoir levels. And they're all on for both sides of the airplane, left and right. And I look up at the ga- hydraulic gauges just above and They're, they're completely at zero. So at this point, I, I mean, I have two options. I eject over the enemy, not really a good option, not one I'm going to take. Yeah. And then we have an, a backup system. And so thankfully I, you know, flip that switch and it, it actually, the airplane starts flying again.
0: Um, during this, uh, d- during this whole time, mm-hmm. did you ever hear the, the the words? We talked about it before. I believe the the was his last name Sweet. That had been the um, previous A ten pilot who was actually a prisoner of war.
1: Yeah, um, it's a good question. I,
0: I hear those words in my head. Yeah. And, and instructors and mentors of mine, and I have I have distinct memories of being deployed and having extremely terrible things. And yeah. I hear the instructor go, Aaron, you've got to do this. You've got yeah. to do this. Here, You've got to go here. I Did think you ever?
1: I, I heard his voice along with, um, i would read the book Warthog, which talks about pilots in Desert Storm. And I, you know, I knew those stories of pilots that had been hit. I think it, this moment right in itself was so dynamic and happened so fast. I don't remember like thinking through that. As soon as I flip the switch and now I'm flying and now I'm like, okay, now this, like, I don't know how long I'm going to be flying for. Like right. this airplane could quit. And it was like, okay, just get out of Baghdad, get above the weather. And then if I have to eject, at least then my chances of survival and escape are higher. Mm-hmm. Then, the, then those voices start coming in, especially when my flight lead says, all right, Casey, you got to think about if you want to jump out of the airplane or get it back to friendly territory and land. And that's when all of those stories, all of those lessons start kind of flooding in of like, I remember this situation, you know, the first pilot that tried landing in manual reversion. I remember the stories from other A-10 pilots of how they flew in manual reversion. Um, And so I think that's why I'm so passionate about the importance of sharing stories and those lessons learned, those Friday nights in the bar, right? They're Mm -hmm. so important because in those critical moments, that's when that's when you hear the voices. That's when, you know, they're not there, obviously, over Baghdad, but their stories are, their experiences are. I, I remember them, you know, and I I think that that's what helped me get back safely.
0: Well, and now you're in the fight. Most yeah. importantly, you know, hey, you took that initial hit. Okay. Now we're in manual reversion. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. But now we're in the fight and you're flying back. When did you put it together that the aircraft was so irreparably damaged? Was it on the flight back?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I couldn't see the damage. So we have uh, mirrors up in our cockpit and I was like trying to angle them to see the damage in the back and I couldn't see anything. So my flight lead pulled up next to me to do a battle damage check, which is like that look over our airplane. It's actually the the picture back behind me is us on the way back, um, kind of that battle damage check. And um, he said that I had hundreds of holes in the fuselage and tail section and then that the the big hole in the fuselage or it's sorry, in the horizontal stabilizer which is kind of the back tail section um so i knew it wasn't good i mean i had all sorts of emergency indications and cautions and you know it was flying that's that's about all I can right. say it was flying it was not flying well uh but it was flying and all i wanted to do was get out of baghdad like i yeah. get out of baghdad that was like okay if i can get out of baghdad and then i have to eject at least it's more open space and then it was like okay i'm out of baghdad let's get to friendly territory, let's make it yep. back to Kuwait. Um, and uh, thankfully my, you know, fuel tanks stayed full. I had no problems with fuel. We were very heavy, we had all sorts of gas because we had just filled up uh, when we got to Baghdad. So we overflew Talil Air Base, which at the time we had positioned aircraft in. And I think uh, there was one fire truck. So that was our decision to overfly Talil is if I crashed on landing that one fire truck no hospital, not potentially not a great situation. So right. you know these are the kinds of conversations we're having, like, okay, well, if you crash, you probably want an ambulance and a fire truck, you know, like we're talking reality, um, definitely makes you think about like, um, you know, the worst case scenarios and.
0: Absolutely. Well, life becomes binary. It's yeah. ones and zeros at that point. You're, yeah. you're alive. You're in the fight. Am I flying? Yes or no? Yep. All right. Yep. Okay. Next next problem. Yep. If I have to crash this bad boy, am I going to be able to walk away from it? Maybe not. Okay. Yes or no? Let's figure yeah. it out. Let's go. You get ready. Yeah. Uh, wh- what airbase did you end up landing at?
1: We ended up landing back in Kuwait, uh, back so, at our home base, which was, you know, it's in firmly territory. So if I have to eject at the last second, I'm at least in Kuwait. There's rescue helicopters right there.
0: Right. You um, made the decision to land. How, yeah, you're 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 getting on short final. You were flying yourself by wires and pulleys and yeah. like straight up Wright brothers stuff yeah. and an air, and an aircraft that should be shot down yeah. after providing close air support. Now, oh by the way, we glossed over it. You hit your target on that last run and you did neutralize mm-hmm. that threat on your way out.
1: Yeah. What
0: were you thinking as you were on short final and you were about to put this that this aircraft out? It was a yard zero six, is that correct?
1: That was my call sign, yeah. Uh, okay. I think at that point, it's just like a little bit of prayer that you make it out, that you do the right thing, that you don't mess it up. Um, Honestly, I was also thinking about the pilots that had come before me. I knew about their experiences. There were three pilots that tried to land in manual reversion during Desert Storm. Um, The first pilot was killed, crashed on landing, and um, I knew about that story. I knew what he had done and the lessons that we had learned from that. And so I was very cautious about having that in the back of my mind, knowing what I needed to do, which was to fly this power on landing, all, you know, fly it all the way to the ground. And, uh, you know, I had those, I, I knew I wasn't going to have brakes. I wasn't going to have steering. You know, yeah, I, I wasn't going to have my speed brakes to slow me down. I mean, it was all just a lot of things I didn't have. And so I remember the stories of the pilots that came before me and focused on just controlling the airplane, just keeping it steady. And then, um when those wheels hit the ground uh, relief is like this i don't know it's not the right word it's the word i use because i was so relieved but uh, it was so much bigger than that i just it was just like this okay i'm going to live you know that's really what it came down right, yeah. to it was this reality of like okay i i i made it you know i'm going to live i'm i'm not going to die today today's not my day and uh, yeah. so yeah uh intense relief i don't know uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then i'm like but I hear this voice. I'm like, so in this moment, I'm like, oh, thank God, I'm on the ground. And then I hear this voice of like, hey, Casey, you can stop the airplane now, because I was just rolling slowly down the runway <laughs> at this point. Like, this point, I don't care. Like, I'm so
0: absolutely. Slow. You're, You're like, yeah. So long. And the,
1: don't the, care. Fire, the fire trucks are like, is she going to stop? You know, they're like, Casey.
0: Um, they're like, tell you to pull over.
1: Pull over. <laughs> yeah, pull over. And so I only had five brake applications. So it wasn't like I wanted to jam on the brakes right away. With this was an emergency backup braking system. So eventually. Used a couple of those brake, uh, pushed down on the brakes, and got the airplane stopped. And then I was like, "I want to get out. I want to see the. I want to see the yeah.
0: damage." Right. And what you got out? What and you saw the aircraft? What did you feel?
1: Uh, shock. I think that it like it's dripping with hydraulic fluid. I mean that the airplane is just dripping with fluid. The backside of the airplane was black from a fire, like charred. Um, there are holes everywhere. Uh, And I realized the holes aren't just in the back of the airplane. That's where most of them are. But there's holes up near the cockpit, you know, around some of the fuel tanks. Uh, The engine took shrapnel damage. So it's a little bit more extensive, I think, than I originally thought. And I remember there were a bunch of Marines that were the firefighters there. And they're just, like, looking at the airplane, looking at me, like, with this. You just landed this thing. Look. And I'm thinking the same thing. Like, I just landed this thing. So
0: oh how long did it take before you started talking shit to everybody was it immediate i imagine it's immediate be like not only did i land this i'm one of the only maybe a handful you know four pilots oh. that have ever tried it i would have done it right away but i i think it's because i'm not as good a person as you casey
1: <laughs> i think uh uh i don't you know what for me i was just so thankful that i was on the ground i was such a like it was just such a I don't know, you're on this adrenaline high for so long. And it took me a while to come down from that. And I think mm-hmm. it was just more of this uh thankfulness that I survived, that I got home. It was, I don't know, it was just um to be around the guys in my squadron, like, I don't know, they're like my brothers, you know, and so they were yeah. just so happy to see me. And uh I don't know, there wasn't a lot of shit talking. It was more just those like, I think we were all just happy that I was back and I was on the ground safe.
0: I knew you were a better person than me. That's a great answer. <laughs> so uh, how much time, how, like after this event, like after this mission, how much time did you spend in that deployment? Did you go back up and fly some more missions and then just continue as fragged and and, and go home after that? Or how did that flow?
1: Yeah. I, uh, I. So my flight lead the next day, we were tasked to sit combat search and rescue alert. And I don't know if that was an intentional choice, but normally, when we sit, CSAR alert. We it's like we sleep, you know, read, Caesar, relax, come
0: sit, and yeah, come sit yeah. and relax. That's what CSAR yeah. means.
1: Yeah, until someone gets shot down, and then you launch, right. which is exactly what happened on April eighth.
0: Oh, great! Yeah. So right away, you're right back in the cockpit. Yeah,
1: so you know, we the alarm sounded. We're like we kind of look at each other, like, "Is this a drill?" Because they would do mm-hmm. drills. And mm-hmm. no, I mean, it came in immediately. An A-10 pilot had been shot down in Baghdad, you know, so now I'm going right back where we were yesterday. Uh, but I I didn't even think about it. It was like, race out to the jet as fast as you can, get in, start, you know, figure out where this pilot is, what shot him down, what's his condition, how do we get the helicopters in? You know, it was just this, those guys were there for me the day before, and so I was going to do the same for him. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind, and I just, I didn't even think about it, which, Honestly, it was like the best way for me to get back in the airplane. You know, 100%. think about it. Just go do the mission, and uh, you know, after that, I st- we st- we were there for another, I think, five months uh, flying missions. So
0: okay, I we do the same upgraded- thing. Though. Go ahead. With uh, we do the same thing with cutaways, like you getting right back and being forced yeah. to go. If, especially like when you're a student, uh, we we do it. You know. Um, even when you're you know further in your career, if you have a cutaway under a parachute, the very first yeah. thing you do is you put on another parachute and you immediately go back up and you just do a yeah. slip jump, just go chill out. Like it's it's the best way to get back into it because I imagine if you spent a lot of time on the ground ruminating and had enough time to think about a scheduled flight, I bet that you would have had a little bit more anxiety yeah. getting back to that aircraft. For,
1: I think for sure, I, there's no doubt in my mind. I mean, we compartmentalized pretty well, which is what I did after this mission. I kind of like tucked it away to deal with later. Uh, but this was, you know, this was a hard one to compartmentalize. So just getting back in the air and kind of like, um, realizing that I could get back in the air, do the mission and I was going to be okay.
0: was important. Mm -hmm. So you got back home and the lore of, of killer chick Campbell starts. Yeah. And you, uh, I imagine that you're still on a deployment cycle. I imagine you get back home. So you were at Pope at the time where, when you deployed out and and you got back, what did your assignment flow look like after that? Uh,
1: so I stayed with the 75th at Pope, uh, for another deployment. We went back to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Um, so I ended up, my first assignment, I think I was at Pope for like four years. It was like unheard of. Usually you're somewhere for two, but we were just deploying so frequently. And by then I was, I had upgraded to flight lead while we were in Iraq. I upgraded to an instructor and, you know, they needed experienced pilots that had deployed. So I, you know, stayed with the unit. Um, Came home from Afghanistan. My husband had already left to go to Nellis Air Force Base to uh, work at weapons school. Mm-hmm. And so I followed him a year later to the test squadron where we transitioned the A-10A to the A-10C, which was awesome. Uh, we okay. had we got to drop and shoot everything that the A-10 could carry, which is a lot. Get uh, it. So <laughs> pretty good time to be at the, we- or at the uh, test squadron there with my husband at the weapons school. And uh, from there, we went on to... Uh, we thought we were going to DC to the Pentagon. We're like, ah, we got to go do our staff tour. Mm-hmm. Ended up going to school for a year uh, with the Army at Command and General Staff College, and then uh, went back to Davis-Monthan to teach uh, the next generation of A-10 pilots. And so that was fantastic. Got to do squadron command while I was there. Then finally uh, got pulled to go to the uh, Pentagon. Uh, not mm-hmm. our not our favorite choice, but knew that it was it was coming. Yeah. Um, and then we, we did get out of there and back to Davis monthan uh, to, uh, to do group command for me. And then wing command for my husband. Um, there was another deployment in there to, uh, Afghanistan, uh, this time for me, it was on the ground working in the ISAF joint command. Mm-hmm. Not my favorite deployment. Wasn't it intense?
0: <laughs> when was that man? It
1: was 2010.
0: Okay. Yeah. We so, just, uh, um, I was, I was, uh, Iraq in 2009 and 10 or something. Yeah. So we just, just missed each other there. It's a different environment, nice.
1: you know, to go back and see it almost 10 years later. I um, bet. yeah. And then, uh, finished out my career at the Air Force Academy. I, uh, got the opportunity to teach in the military and strategic studies department. And then, uh, Tried to retire a few times in there. It didn't happen. (laughs) Finished out my final year as the director at the Center for Character and Leadership Development. So kind of came full circle for me, you know, back to the academy, back where I started, you know, back where I met my husband, you know, just a nice way to finish things off.
0: Yeah, but you weren't done there. So you decided to to engage in some other stuff. Obviously, you know, you you were awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross with Valor for your actions in 2003 and had a full career all the way up to 06 after that but you still weren't done giving back. So your post air force life involves a lot of public speaking and involves a lot of, Mm -hmm. of, of talking to people. Why did you decide to keep serving in the, in the way that you did?
1: You know, I think I have, you know, I've spent, I spent 24 years serving and it's hard. It's hard to walk away from that. I, I enjoyed it. I loved it. I, you know, I found my passion and my purpose with supporting our troops on the ground and when I stopped flying the A-10, it was like, okay, find your new passion and purpose. And I realized how important it was to give back. And being at the Academy was like this opportunity to help the next generation of leaders. And so retiring was still a hard decision for me. I mean, I tried three times and I finally, you know, did Mm. it on the third time around. So
0: it finally stuck.
1: Yeah, it finally stuck. And I wanted to find a way to continue that service. And, you know, like I said, I people shared stories with me along my career. They shared their experiences. They shared their lessons learned, even if it was like, hey, I screwed this up. They shared those things with me. And so now it's like, I feel a responsibility to share what I've learned with other people. I mean, it's not all success. There's failures, there's mistakes. And so I feel a bit of a responsibility to share those things, um, to help other people develop and grow. And that's part of the speaking. It's why I decided to write a book. Um, You know, it's just I think it's important. I think you can help other people by sharing stories and sharing lessons learned. Um, so I, you know, it's nice to, it's nice to be able to give back. Cause I feel like so many people did so many things for me along the way.
0: Yep. We are 100% going to plug the book. We'll, we'll put it in the comments and we'll put it out there when the episode drops. So uh, fantastic. And thank you for everything that you did in, in your military service. And this one hits, hits close to my heart as we were kind of talking last night before the podcast, I said, Hey, you know, if there's any passion projects or something that you want to talk about, immediately you hit me with the Special Operations uh, Transition Foundation or, or sodif.org Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about what that is meant to do?
1: Yeah, so I, um, I joined the board for the Special, operators, um, special Operations Transition Foundation. And, um, you know, it was like this. I had spent my whole career supporting our troops on the ground, so why not continue to do it? And uh, it's, I think, one of the things that we struggle with when we leave the military or decide to leave the military is how do we transition? What's next? How do I do this next chapter of my life? And, you know, our special operators have given so much to this country, have, you know, deployed so frequently, especially in this current generation. And so helping them find the next that transition to do something that's positive and important has an impact. I think sometimes we can undersell the things that we've done. And so helping them to, one, understand all the amazing things that they've done and how that translates to corporate America. I think that's so important. Uh, And so our foundation does that. We um, help special operators from all the community, all the services, uh, transition out. We're ideally looking for about 12 to 18 months from retirement or separation. Mm -hmm. And then there's career coaching, there's mentoring, there's uh, ability to like, you know, help you figure out what you want to do, where you want to do it, you know, find the career field that fits for you. And then it's like a flight following. We're going to support you all along the way. We're going to help you introduce you to connections. We're going to help you get interviews, um, walk you through that process. And then, you know, ideally help you find that that next job, you know, that's going to be of interest for you. And that's going to help you and your family um, succeed in kind of the next chapter. So, I think it's really important when we talk about kind of the resilience of our force and of our veterans, helping people transition is really important. And there's a lot of foundations and and agencies out there that can help. Um, And so it's really just helping people be aware that there are so many people out there that are willing to help. And, um, you know, I just I kind of found my home with SODIF and the work that they do.
0: Well, as a guy that's been supported by the A-10 in my active duty life, and as a guy that's in that 12 to 18 month window, that's probably going to be knocking on your door here very soon to to talk about this stuff. I can't say, (laughs) I can't say thank you enough for this initiative. Uh, I did the, you know, doing the research on it and, and figuring out exactly what it was your support, your input, your professionalism, your help with this project is just absolutely unparalleled. And the fact that you found a way to take what you've done your entire career and really help other people continually when you didn't have to. That just speaks to your character. And, ma'am, I just want to say thank you for everything that you've done. That's that's a righteous cause, and, and that's awesome.
1: Absolutely, thank you. It's you know, it's uh, it's all about finding your passion and your purpose and what's important to you, and and focusing on that. And so, uh, you know, it's it's about finding that camaraderie again and finding your passion even on the outside of the military.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, ma'am, that feels like a good place to end. So I'm going to hit you with the question that that we always (laughs) ask our guests. So you've done, you know, from getting into the Air Force Academy to becoming an A-10 pilot to having, you know, one of the, you know, the top missions, uh, just absolutely insane missions and the things that you've done all all along your way. Each one of those things is an impossible task. You know, we speak directly to people that are going to try to do something with a 91% failure rate, some, some things that look impossible you know, just for the chance to go and do what you did, which is, you know, almost give your life for the nation. What would you, what piece of advice would you give to people that are trying to do this impossible task?
1: I think it comes down to work hard, have a good attitude and don't be afraid to fail. I mean, I think you're going to fail at some point, you're going to make mistakes. And so it's so important of how you respond in that. You know, how will you respond to failure? If you put in the work and you have a good attitude, then acknowledge the mistakes, acknowledge the failures, learn from it, don't do it again, and then move on, you know, and uh, if you want to do something that is hard, then you've got to put in the work, and it's not going to be an easy road, but it is so worth it in the end.
0: Crush it, (laughs) ma'am. Thanks thanks for coming in and talking to us everybody check out the onesready.com site you can see everything our reading list will be updated immediately after this with kc's book so kim killer chick campbell ma'am thanks for coming on everybody else shoot us a dm over at the ig account find us wherever you have your podcast as always train hard have a good one thanks there. thanks ma'am